So this morning we want to continue our look at uh, the book of Colossians. As you remember the last time that I preached, I presented an introduction for the book of Colossians. We spent most of our time in the book of Acts, building context that would lead up to the writing of the letter of Colossians. We saw how Paul spent four years in prison unjustly. Two years in Caesarea and another two years he spent in Rome because of false accusations leveled at him by the Jews, namely that he had allowed a Gentile into the inner, inner courts of the temple in Jerusalem, which obviously was a false accusation. He had not done that. He suffered tremendously at the hands of those with power and influence, and over and over again, as one reads through the last chapters of the book of Acts, we see how Paul always took every opportunity to share the gospel with anyone who would give him an audience. And in fact, we saw his imprisonment as God's purpose for the gospel to be spread. Through his suffering, he saw true purpose in his suffering. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, we read, remember Philippians is one of the books that he, re- that he wrote while he was in prison at that time. We read, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And it brought Paul joy, knowing that God had ordained his suffering in order that the gospel would be advanced. So we left Paul in prison there last time, and now Epaphras, who is one of the leaders and teachers of the Colossian church, which is most likely also the same church which met in Philemon's house, comes to visit Paul and bring him a report. This report isn't all bad. Epaphras tells Paul of the Colossians' love for the saints, of their faith and of their hope in the gospel. But there is an underlying issue. There were some dangerous teachings creeping into the church, and they were leading the people of God away from Christ. But probably the most dangerous of all was the fact that these teachings were being added to Christianity. So there was a mixture of error along with truth. This is called syncretism. They took aspects of their previous pagan and Jewish folklore beliefs and synced or added them to Christianity. They didn't fully do away with Christ. They just added their own pagan beliefs, their prior beliefs to Christ. This holds the idea or gives the impression that Christ is insufficient. Christ is not enough. And it's something that's commonly seen in Christianity today as well under the guise of legalism. And in Colossians, Paul unequivocally condemns this practice. The idea that, yes, Jesus died for me, but we also need to do this or that. We need to dress a certain way. We need to wear our hair exactly so and so and so on. There's many other forms of legalism, but we must hold to the sufficiency of Christ to save us. And we need to hold to the sufficiency of Christ to keep us and not rely on these outward rules and regulations. And the sufficiency of the word in all things is what we need to hold to and all things pertaining to the Christian life. If the Bible doesn't make a demand, then we should not make it either. The syncretism we see in Colossians is often the same syncretism we see today. We see syncretism in the area of demonic warfare and how much emphasis is put on the power of demons or how in today's world so many people rely on extra-biblical revelations and visions. That's paganism. It's idol worship from ancient times. 
attributing power to the spiritual realm. Paul talks about that in Colossians when he speaks of rulers and principalities and calls them empty deceivers. What I love about Colossians, personally, is how Paul takes these false teachings and sets them up against the supremacy of Christ. And you will notice when you read the book how Paul compares the preeminence of Christ to the emptiness of demonic forces, worldly philosophies, relying on visions, and legalism. An example of legalism, or not legalism, sorry, an example of syncretism in my own life that I often think about is there was a time I used to believe that demons could be attached to objects in our house, and we threw out a lot of stuff because of it. And that is not a biblical concept. It's a pagan concept. Thus, it was an example of syncretism that I had to root out and instead cling to the sufficiency of the Bible. Colossians is filled with deep, rich Christian theology of who the person of Christ is, and that leads also into a study of Christian ethics in Colossians. In other words, if this is who Christ is, Paul is saying to the Colossians, if this is who Christ is, if he really is all this, then this is our response. This is what our lives should look like. And we need to stop clinging to these false teachings that are empty and have no, are unable to grow us in holiness. So this theology and ethics all stem from the report of the false teachings that Epaphras brought to Paul. Remember Paul says in chapter 2 that he hasn't seen the people in Colossae, so he probably has never been there. Yet it is a beautiful pastorally concerned letter to people who didn't get their church plan from an apostle, and thus they were lacking a strong doctrinal foundation which allowed these false teachings to creep in. But this church did the right thing. They understood that they were lacking, and they asked for help. And they were very wise in that regard. So let's stand, and let's maybe read the first two chapters of Colossians. And you will notice what one of the prayers that we often pray for our church here is based on this book. In chapter 1, you'll also see how Paul sets up the supremacy of Christ in comparison to the weak false teachings later on in chapter 2. So watch how he builds up Christ before he actually before he actually um, addresses the false teachings in chapter 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is the faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, I come before you, and I thank you, God, for this opportunity again this morning to look into your word. Lord, I pray that your word would work, would move today, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help me to remain true to your word. Pray, God, that you would first and foremost prepare my heart, and then also, Lord, that you would prepare the hearts of everyone here. Lord, I am an inadequate vessel, Lord, but... It is not about me, it is all about you. And it is your word, word, Lord, that is adequate. I pray, Father, that you would help us to remain true to that. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my sermon this morning is basically based on the first two verses. Of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And I basically want to look at more or less two things this morning. What is a true apostle and what is a true saint? We see this letter is being addressed by Paul, a true apostle, to the true saints at Colossae. In these first two verses, those two questions are answered. Who wrote the book and to whom is it written? And Paul immediately declares his authority in writing this book. He's saying, I have the authority to speak on these matters, so please listen to what I have to say. He is an apostle, not by his own whimsical fancy, but by the will of God himself. This is a letter by a true apostle to a church of saints. So what is an apostle then? I think it's important to maybe look at this a little bit, especially with the direction that Christianity is headed. Even in this community, it seems Mennonites all over North and South America have been a little bit slow to get on board the apostolic reformation, word of faith and prosperity gospel train, but nevertheless, they have certainly managed to get on board. There are many, many people today, and even in this small community, who believe either themselves to be true apostles or who believe others they know to be true apostles. And I'm guessing probably every, almost everybody here knows at least somebody like that. And some of us has family like that. They believe they have the same a power and authority as Paul and the other original apostles did. If that were the case, then Paul's acclamation of authority here would be quite meaningless. The office of an apostle in the Bible had three basic responsibilities. Number one, to lay the foundation of the church, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. 
And I'll quickly turn there and I'll read chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Where it says, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the first basic responsibility, to lay the foundation of the church. The second is to declare the revelation of God's word. We read that in Acts 11, verse 28, Acts 21, verse 10 and 11, and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. And the third basic responsibility is to give confirmation of that word through signs and wonders and miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 and Hebrews 2, verse 3 to 4. Today we would say that the Bible is the authority over the church during the time when the book of Acts was actually written. They did not have a written New Testament to appeal to for this final authority. Hence the apostles were that authority to declare the word of God to others. After the New Testament was written and God had inspired the completed canon, there were, they were no longer needed. And in case anyone doubted the authority of the apostles, they were able to authenticate and confirm their words were true and that their words truly came from God by the signs and the wonders that they were able to do, which only God would have the power to do. And we read that in 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. 2 Corinthians 12.12 12, Reads this, or First Corinthians twelve twelve. I think I've got it written down here, or written down wrong. Either way, First First Corinthians or Second Corinthians twelve twelve. The signs of a true apostle. So these are the signs of a true apostle, were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So we see these signs and wonders were signs of a true apostle. Hebrews chapter two verse three to four, reads. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, those who heard being the apostles, while the Lord also bore witness by signs and wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed and according to His will. So God bore witness with signs and wonders through true apostles. The basic meaning of the Greek word apostolos, which is translated apostle, means to be sent or to go on a mission. In its primary meaning in the Bible, it refers to the original twelve and the apostle Paul. In its secondary sense, it refers to any believer being a messenger for God. Today, we would call a sent person a missionary in its secondary sense, although in that secondary sense, we are all apostles are all messengers and all have a mission field. But it is not the secondary sense of apostleship that is gaining ground within Christianity. Unfortunately, it is the primary sense of having the power and authority to perform signs and wonders. It is this sense that is growing and gaining ground. It is an emphasis on the gift rather than the giver. Just as the Bible gives three basic responsibilities of a true apostle, the Bible also gives three qualifications for being a true apostle. First qualification, they had to be chosen by Jesus. And there are many, many verses that, that uh, support this, but we'll only look at a few. They had to be chosen by Jesus, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And again, being able to cast out demons was a sign of being a true apostle in the New Testament times. They had to, uh, the second one, they had to be able to perform signs and wonders, and in order to be confirmed as a true apostle. So not only is that a responsibility, but that was a qualification to be able to perform these signs and wonders, be able to heal people, to be able to raise people from the dead, to be able to cast out demons, to be able to speak in tongues. So they had to be able to perform these signs and wonders in order to be confirmed as a true apostle, we, as we already read in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 and in the book of Hebrews. And third, they had to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. And this is where Matthias is chosen as the disciple who replaces Judas. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. And we'll find here a qualification that was necessary in order for one of the men to be chosen a disciple or an apostle. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we see that the qualification necessary there to be called an apostle was to have a, be a witness to the resurrected Christ. And then we also have Paul, who claimed to be the last to meet the qualification of having seen the risen Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul says, Last of all, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. It's interesting to note that Paul is the only true apostle who could probably be accused of a self-authenticated apostleship. It was Paul, he said he saw a vision that God came to him and appointed him an apostle. He said that he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and possibly when he went into the mountains to be taught by God in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. But how could Paul prove it? seems like it's very much many of the so-called apostles in today's world, they basically do the same thing. They claim to be able to do this and that. They claim to be able to do this. But there's never really any witnesses. There's never, basically it's a self-authenticated apostleship. So maybe Paul is guilty of the same thing. But what did Paul do? Paul did the wise 
an honorable thing by traveling to Jerusalem to meet with the other true apostles whom Jesus himself had appointed and witnesses could testify to the fact that Jesus had truly appointed these men. And Paul had them affirm his apostleship in the book of Acts and he tells about it in Galatians chapter 2. No one today is able to meet these qualifications and no one today is able to be affirmed as an apostle by the original 12 the way Paul did. There are no more apostles today. The term apostle is not even used in the book of Acts after chapter 16 verse 4. And we also see in some of the later New Testament books that the apostles themselves no longer performed signs and wonders, even when other people were sick. Paul is able to truthfully say he is a true apostle by the will of God and not his own. Paul understood that the only thing that mattered was the will of God. He was no longer about his own will. He was now about God's will. He understood that he did not choose God on the way to Damascus, but God chose him. He was now sold out for God. He once was an enemy of God and a friend of the world. But in love, God took him and transformed him, transformed him and reconciled Paul to himself. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And it's such a beautiful verse. Just before that, he says, in Romans chapter 5, he talks about how he died for us while we were enemies of him. And then a couple of verses later, he says, he reconciled us while we were enemies of him. When you think about reconciliation, that means to be a part of something. I used the example, I've used the examples in the past, it's just a simple little example. My hands now are unreconciled and now my hands are reconciled. It's just a little illustration of how what reconciliation means. And not only does the Bible say that God died for us while we were his enemy, it says he reconciled us to himself while we were his enemy. What a beautiful thing to understand the depth of love that this must, that this must be. Paul understood that being an apostle by the will of God meant that the suffering that came with doing the will of God was also the will of God. Remembering again his affliction in prison in Acts chapter 21 verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? This is where some of his friends were trying to convince him to not go to Jerusalem because of the um, suffering that awaited him there. He says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of, Lord be, let the, will of the Lord be done. And Paul found purpose in his suffering. In Colossians chapter 1, when we read a little bit further in verse 1, we find Timothy is not referred to as an apostle. And it seems Paul is careful to not put his apostolic authority on Timothy. Timothy, our brother, is not Paul the Apostle. Our brother has a sense of affection. Paul didn't say my helper. He didn't say my teammate, my companion, my employee, my student, or my friend. He said my brother. Paul loved Timothy dearly. And Timothy was actually from Lystra in the Colossae area. 
and was converted there in Acts chapter 16. He was a true friend and a companion for Paul. And now, after Paul's arrest and subsequent imprisonment, Timothy was still there by Paul's side. He was ministering to him, and he proved himself to be reliable and devoted to Paul. Timothy was also most likely penning the letter according to Paul's dictation. In other words, Paul was telling Timothy what to write down. This was actually a very common practice in those days. And in the final greeting in Colossians 4.18, Paul says, now, now I am writing with my own hand. In Colossians 4.18, Paul says, Now I am writing in my own hand. Which indicates prior to that sentence, he was not most likely writing by his own hand. In verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Saints is such a wonderful word to describe the believer. And all true believers are saints. Not just the spiritual elite like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Saints literally means the holy ones. It means to be pure and it means to be set apart. The Greek word is used over 200 times in the New Testament, and over half the time it is translated into English as holy, depending obviously on the context. But it gives us the sense of what the word entails. Even when the third person of the Trinity is, is mentioned in, in, the, in the Bible, the holy part of the Holy Spirit is the same Greek word as saints. A saint is a description of who we are in Christ. He has taken a sinful man and created a holy being, set apart from the world. It is a way of saying what Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 15, But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And it's something, honestly, that just really hit me. When I, when I studied it, that it is the same, that, just think about it, the same word for saints is the same word for holy in the Greek. Obviously, there's a bit of a nuance there because of the context and how it's translated, but still, it's just an incredible thought. And even how the, the third person of the Trinity, Trinity, the Holy Spirit, whenever his name is written, the holy part of the Holy Spirit is the same word as saints. Throughout scriptures, there are different titles given to believers. We are called Christians, we are called brothers and sisters, disciples, slaves of Christ, and saints. From a human perspective or from a human standpoint, saints would probably be the least deserving. There was never a time a saint was without sin and a saint will continue to commit sins even in their Christian walk due to their fallen nature in Adam. Yet the name expressly implies something pure and something without any sin. 
That is what makes this so amazing. It glorifies the work of God in us and it exalts God. It is an active and ongoing display of His grace. We sin, yet we are called saints. We are sinners in our fallen nature and saints in our identity in Christ. This should truly make our hearts leap for joy. And if we are truly born again, God sees us as saints and not as sinners. Because when we trust in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins and that he rose again, then God will take our sins and put them on Christ, past, present, and future, and punish his one and only Son for what we have done, and take the righteousness of Christ and put it on us. That is grace. Titus 3.5 reads, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him in him we might become the righteousness of God. God takes our sin, puts them on Christ. He takes Christ's righteousness and imputes it to us. So what makes a believer a saint is not their practical righteousness. Practical righteousness would be our righteous acts or the good works that we would practice. But our positional righteousness, which is who we are in Christ, This is due to God's work in the believer through justification and sanctification, specifically positional sanctification, which is the start of sanctification when a person comes to faith or is truly born again. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We are saints by the work of God, set apart as holy ones or saints by God. With that in mind, how can we continue to attempt to gain favor with God through our works? Instead, we need to lean fully upon His grace for our sanctification as an undeserved saint. So often when we struggle with, struggle with the assurance of salvation, it is because we are relying upon our performance as a Christian. Instead of relying upon the, the work that Christ already did upon the cross. We are looking towards our performance over here instead of looking to what Christ already did over there. That's when we will truly struggle with our with assurance of our salvation. We think God will look more favorably upon us when we do good works, like read the Bible or pray or have devotions with our family. We think that we will God will now look more favorably upon us when we do those things. Don't get me wrong, we absolutely need to be doing those things. But our motive should never be because we think God will look more favorably upon us. God's love is already perfect. So you think you're going to make God's love more perfect by what you do? It's not possible. It won't get more perfect just because we're doing something. The Bible says, as believers, we have the righteousness of Christ. In other words, all his perfect works that Christ already did, the perfect works that Christ already did were imputed to us. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. In other words, all, in other words, when God looks at you, he does not see a saint because of anything you have done, whether or not you devo- did devotions last night or you forgot to, whether or not you forgot to pray last night whether or not you forgot to read your Bible last night. 
God looks at you and he sees a saint not because of your failures or the, or the good things that you've done or because you actually did something good. It's not because of that he sees a saint. If he did, it was be, then it would be because of your righteousness instead of his. But it's because when he looks at you, he sees the perfect works of Christ that was imputed to you. And that is why we are saints. That is why we are called holy, being set apart for God. He sees, a, he sees a saint when he looks at you because he sees Christ's righteousness. Is that not good news? Is that not a burden off our shoulders? It is his work. And please don't misunderstand me that I'm saying that it's okay to not be doing those things. But allow God to do a work in your life. Trust him. You doing those things is not, not going to change how God looks at you. Trust in him. Paul says in Philippians that it is God who started the work in you and it is God who will finish the work in you. We must see all these things as his gift of grace. Even when we go through a hard time, it is a gift of God's grace that benefits his children as our trials around us creates within us a holiness that is shaped and increased by God that will draw us ultimately closer to Him. James chapter 4, verse 6, But He gives grace, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. As we already saw, it is all to the praise of His glorious grace that we can be called saints. Grace is an undeserved gift, unmerited favor. In the Colossians, they seem to, have, seem to have had a hard time distinguishing what was true Christianity and what was their former pagan practices. This does not mean that they were in saints. It is the gospel, as Paul explains in chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, that, make the, that made them saints. But as saints, they also recognized their weaknesses and errors and understood that they needed help, which is why they appealed to Paul. This lack of doctrinal conviction is what led to their syncretizing belief system and why they were easily vulnerable to the false teachers bringing in these destructive heresies. But as true saints, they didn't just say doctrine is unimportant. No, they understood it as being of utmost importance. Which is why Paul's response is so doctrinally rich in Colossians. Paul too understood that it was sound doctrine that would help this church. Syncretism doesn't mean that you are not a true believer, but it does mean you are weak on doctrine and have a weak understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. And we all, honestly, we all have areas where we probably add something to Christianity, or we emphasize something that we shouldn't, or de-emphasize something that we shouldn't de-emphasize. But by studying the Word of God and allowing that to be our guide and to shape us, we are also able to grow as a Christian and grow in our convictions and to come to a proper worship of God and who God is. So not only is being called a saint a result of grace, but peace, as we read in verse 2, is a result of this gift of grace as well. 
Since peace is a result of grace, something we don't deserve, then peace also is something we don't deserve, is also unmerited and something that cannot be earned. It too is a gift. Since peace does not depend upon our deservedness, then it also does not depend upon how we feel. Peace from God is actually objective. It is not just a feeling, which means we actually have peace from God even when we don't feel as if we have peace. God doesn't actually just give you peace whenever you feel it. He has promised in his word that you already have it. Feeling peace is the subjective side of peace. It can be caused by circumstances around us, by being free from troubles and trials. That's not what peace is. Peace is not just the absence of trials. Peace is God. Peace is what God has given us. Although Colossians 3.15 does say that we should experience peace or feel peace in our hearts, feeling it is not the same as having it. Anyone who is saved has peace whether they feel it or not because it is promised from God and it comes forth from God. It does not come forth originally from our hearts. It comes forth from God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore we have been justified by faith. Therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is present tense. It is not past tense or pretense. It is present tense. We have peace with God. And it is a result of our justification. It is a gift that comes along with our salvation, that peace. Peace is sure because it is a promise from God. It is not of ourselves. If it was of ourselves, then it would come and go, depending on how we would feel that day. And the more we come to understand from Scripture how everything is from God, from our salvation to our sanctification to our glorification, the more we will remove the burden of performance off our shoulders, the more we will live in victory with this peace in our hearts. Colossians chapter 3.15, he even goes a little bit further, and he does not separate the word of God from feeling this peace. It is through a study of who God is that we will truly come to understand what God can do and the work that he does in a believer and that God is unchanging. When you read through the, through the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again God's faithfulness to the people of Israel and those who obey his commands. It is the same God then that we have now. God is immutable. God does not change. And is a wonderful promise. The more we understand God, the more our faith will grow. And the more we will be able to be free from this burden of performance. And the more our, with the things that we do do, we do need to be reading the word. As we just saw, we read the word so that our faith will grow in God. Because that is where God has revealed himself. That is where we will come to understanding of who God is. And the more we know who God is, the more we will know what he is capable of doing. It's a bit of a, a silly interpretation or silly example or illustration, but I mean, but when I sometimes think of maybe you know somebody, there's, there's a well here and you know somebody who fell in this well and you're really, really anxious about it, obviously. 
then somebody else comes along and says, hey, don't worry about it. Superman is on his way to rescue this guy who fell in the well. Well, if you had never heard about Superman, you that would not ease your anxiety about the situation. If you didn't know who Superman was and what Superman was capable of, it would not ease your anxiety about this person in the well. But, hey, if you had watched all the Superman movies and read all the Superman comics, then you know exactly what he's capable of, right? And it would ease that anxiety. Just a silly illustration, but at the same time, it's the same with God. When we go through trials and we go through these, these hard times, if we don't understand who God is from his word, our faith might be weak. Or we might have a hard time trusting God in these situations. But if we read from God's word, and the more we read, the more we understand who he is, when we give these issues or these anxieties over to God, he will help us with that. It grows our faith, just as it grows our faith in what Superman is capable of. It grows our faith in what God is capable of. Sorry to use such a weird illustration, but just for me it makes sense. (laughs) So let us learn to dwell on the promises of God. Let's read his word. Learn more about him and discover your faith begin to grow as you understand who he is and what he has promised. Let us examine ourselves. Are we doing God's will? Are we a saint? Are we growing in holiness? Have we been given the gift of grace? Do we have peace with God? Trust in God today. See how the death of Christ has always been God's plan from the beginning and how the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. Every time someone sinned, a lamb had to be sacrificed, an innocent lamb. The lamb didn't sin, but an innocent blood had to be shed to cover the to cover the debt of sin. In the New Testament, Jesus is that Lamb of God. Jesus is the perfect and pure and innocent Lamb without blemish. And just as the Lamb in the Old Testament had to be sacrificed to pay for our sins, Jesus was that sacrifice in the New Testament. But Jesus being the ultimate Lamb of God, only needed one sacrifice for all our sins, past, present, and future. Stop focusing on our own efforts and on our own sins and self-improvement tricks. See how Paul in Colossians removes focus from everything except Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and find grace today before his throne of mercy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that we can be called saints, that we are your holy ones. That title is not deserved. It is not something because what we have done. It is not something based upon righteous acts or good works but it is fully because of your work in us, Lord, your work on the cross and how your righteousness is imputed to us, your works, 
your holiness is imputed to us, Lord. Father, I pray that we would cast off the burden of performance and how it always continually and constantly causes us to struggle with the assurance of salvation. But that we would look to you, Lord, not look at our performance, but look at what you've done on the cross. Pray, Father, that we would humble ourselves, that we would find grace, and that you would draw near to us. And may our works be an outflow of gratefulness and thankfulness for what you have done on the cross, not to try and gain favor in your eyes, Lord, but an outflow of gratefulness and thankfulness. Help us, God, to understand who you are. Help us to read your word. And through that, that the Holy Spirit would do a work in our lives and shape us continually to become more and more like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.